as Leia said to Han when they broke up, may divorce be with you. your source for good counsel. I'm your host, Andrew J. Mertzenich, licensed attorney. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Prime Law Podcast. Before we get into the substance of today's episode, I'd like to just reiterate an opportunity that you have. We're always welcoming questions and comments at our phone line here at Prime Law Podcast, so if you would like to get in touch with us, make sure to dial 708-76-MY-POD. We love responding to your questions, and we love hearing your feedback. Who knows? Maybe a question you ask or a comment you make will be the subject of an entire episode, which is the case today. We've received a lot of feedback and a lot of questions regarding family law, and so I thought I would bring in a family law attorney who just happens to be my colleague here at Prime Law Group's own Woodstock office, and that is attorney Gene Butler. Now, a few disclosures here. Gene wasn't always on the career track to become an attorney. Her first career was actually professional showing and training of show-jumping horses. However, she left that profession to study at DePaul College of Law. You may have noticed a theme here at Prime Law Group. We love our animals, and we love our animal attorneys. Nevertheless, following a mission of the bar, Jean decided to concentrate her career in family law, which again will be the subject of today's program. In addition to family law, she's also a prosecutor for the village of Island Lake in McHenry County, Illinois, where she prosecutes traffic violations, hit-and-run offenses, and DUIs. When Jean is not working, she enjoys spending time with her family, and they enjoy traveling to all types of outdoor adventures. She also enjoys other outdoor activities like gardening, home improvement projects, and kayaking, swimming, and fishing with her family on the local lakefront. And of course, I think she would agree with me that there's no better way to spend an afternoon than recording an episode of Prime Law Podcast. So welcome, Jean. Thank you, Andrew. I'm doing great. I'm so glad you could join us. So let's hop right into this. So I have a few questions here. I know that you and I talked a little bit before the show because we want to make sure that we're having good content for the listeners. Um, but as your biography says, you practice in the realm of family law. Can you tell me what exactly family law encompasses in your practice? Sure, I'd love to. Family law encompasses uh, divorces, both with and without children involved. Um, sometimes pets are involved in that as well, along with many other things. It also involves what is called paternity cases, and that's for unmarried people with children or a child. And it also tends to include the orders of protection and the stalking no contact. So those are the three different main areas of law that the family law judges and attorneys deal with. So you said you do pets and everything like that. Have you and Tracy ever sparred off? No, she has asked me something recently, but I have not had the pleasure to deal with a pet per se in a divorce. We'll have to try that sometime and you'll have to have both of you on and we'll have to talk about how that went. Speaking specifically about divorce, then let's Imagine that I know absolutely nothing because it's probably true. What exactly is divorce? Divorce is when two people become legally married or have a civil union and they decide that things aren't working out as they had foreseen when they got married. And now they have to undo that legal process that wed them. Sometimes it involves children, 
but it will always involve some financial matters one way or another. And then, as I said earlier, sometimes maybe a pet or some other random uh, things need to be sorted out. So I'm wondering, what does the process look like? So I've decided I need a divorce. What happens next? Henry VIII, do I chop her head off? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, well, that's certainly an option, probably not your best one when you're <laughs> in this circumstance. Um, but very briefly, somebody files a petition that starts your case in the court, and then the other person has to file a response. And if they don't, then they end up going into a default. And that means the divorce is going to happen, whether or not they want it to. Then you go through the steps of deciding who is going to get what in the divorce. And that process starts with what was acquired during the marriage, both assets, debts, uh, personal property, things of that nature. And then if it is sorted out, you enter into an agreed, uh, it's called a marital settlement agreement. If those are not worked out by you and your spouse or partner, then you end up going to trial. And then the judge decides to allocate those things among the two of you, and it ends with what is called a judgment for dissolution of marriage. So you brought up a concept about property, and I'm curious, you said that uh, property that you received or took or bought during the course of the marriage, do we treat things differently if it was purchased or acquired before the marriage? Yes, absolutely. It's considered not to be a marital asset. And the same goes for debt. So if there was a debt acquired prior to the marriage, um, it will typically be excluded. There are many circumstances in which it will be considered, though, in the allocation of everything else. It can still have some influence on the divorce, but your starting point is what was acquired during the marriage and what, what was not. So where do you as the attorney fit into all this? Are you working with the parties? I mean, does every, does everybody need an attorney when they go through divorce? Where I know I'm asking like five questions in once, and if we were in the courtroom, you'd hammer me on that. But no. what, what's your role as the attorney in all this? My role, again, trying to keep everything a little simple for this podcast, is I give my clients the legal information they need, and then the legal advice as well. So, it starts with the law, which is either a statute, which is the written law, and then there's case law. And that is how the judges, um, I'm sorry, interpret the, the statutory law. And then we go from there, because at the end of the day, what we're looking for is for things to end equitably. Equitably does not mean equally. Equitably, a very fancy word. Yes. We like our fancy words on the <laughs> podcast. Yes, equitably. It just means what's fair. Um, the funny part is, is it's maybe not necessarily fair, but it is what it is. It's whatever the court says is fair. Or what the parties agree to. It's just to finalize the process. Okay. And that's to get us through to the end. Um, what happens then, say we've gone through this process and we've somehow either we've agreed to it or we've made it through trial and you get that judgment for dissolution. Is that the end of it, or is there any legwork on the parties that needs to happen? Um, I know that some people are granted the right to use a maiden name or a former name, um, but basically once that judgment of dissolution ends, is that the end of them? The parties never have to see each other again? No, especially if there's children involved. Ooh. Absolutely. They'll Back be to the Thunderdome? Yep. I just say, you know, it's it, you had children together, so you're going to see each other the rest of your lives. It's not fair to the children to do anything different. 
but in terms of how often you see each other, that's dependent upon everybody's individual circumstances. So turning to the subject of children a little bit, because um, that's really where those messy divorces come in. Um, I'm wondering if you could walk me through a little bit of like child support, because I know that uh, Illinois has is very liberal in the idea of we want children supported by their families and such, <laughs> uh, whether that be through divorce and, and payments and stuff. But what goes into calculating child support? So the law before was much more simple. It was just a percentage of the non-residential parents salary was paid to the residential parents non-residential meaning uh who the children lived with primarily the typically it was the children went with mom dad was the worker so a percentage of his income went to the children but now since society's changed a little bit and many if not most women are working now they take both of the parents income and then base child support on each parent's ratio of that combined income The other factor that goes into it is how often the children are with each parent, because it's no longer just dad sees them every other weekend in many cases. So that's also factored in. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that there was so much more analysis to it, because many people who come to me for estate planning are like, yeah, I got divorced 20 years ago. And, you know, the whole time they hated it because dad only got to see him every other weekend or on some every other holiday. and such. Yeah, there's plenty of uh, studies out there that show that but having both parents involved in the children's life is beneficial to the children. So it's encouraged. Now, how does child support differ from alimony? Or I guess alimony is the old term. Maintenance can be temporary or long term. It depends on how long the parties have been married and what are the realistic earning capabilities of each party, both current and future. Interesting. So as you said, that word equitable, it's really looking at the, the the overall condition of the parties rather than just looking at, well, this person makes more, therefore they should pay more kind of thing. It tries. It does the best that it can, given, given what we're dealing with. It tries to make the, a perfection out of imperfect people. Yes, that's exactly right. So a lot of times in litigation, um, I used to be a part of this uh, when I was a civil litigator, there were cases of alternate dispute resolution, arbitration, and stuff like that. Um, You've talked about going into the courts, you know, sometimes the judge has to decide by trial. Is there any equivalent of that in the divorce area? Can I get an agreed divorce by an arbitrator or anything like that? Sure. Not an arbitrator because you don't have anybody decide the outcome of your divorce other than the judge or yourself. Other two options are a collaborative divorce and mediation. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I'm curious. Sure. So a collaborative divorce, I am not trained in that. So I really don't know the best way to summarize that, except that each party does have an attorney, and usually there are other professionals brought into the mix. It tends to be more expensive. And you mentioned mediation. Um, what, it, what exactly is mediation? Like, is that, uh, well, you're, you're a trained mediator from what I understand, right? Or you, you yes. handle mediations? Yes. So what, how does that process differ from what we just talked about with the court system? What, 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 what's the point of a mediation session? Um, well, usually there's more than one mediation session. Oh, okay. There's multiple rounds. Yeah. So we look at it as it's a process for two people to come together and try to come up with 
um, inform solutions to the topics of a divorce that they need to finalize. And as I said before, you have the mediator who's a neutral party there trying to guide this conversation to make sure that things from the past that don't matter interfere with this process of coming to uh, an agreement at the end of the, the mediation process. So are there benefits to mediation versus just let's, I like to use the term, taking it to the Thunderdome, you know? Yeah, fighting it out. There's a ton of benefits to going through mediation. Um, the main pro, as I guess I'll call it, to mediation is you two are coming up with your own outcome to the divorce. You don't have a judge deciding things for you because no matter what the position of each party is or the facts involved in the what each party wants at the end of the day, you may get something completely different than what he wants or what she wants. And both of you may be extremely unhappy with that outcome. So in that with that in mind, you're actually coming up with the outcome. So a little bit of that collaborative process you were talking about, still have to work with the person. That seems like a major con to me if I'm trying to get rid of them. <laughs> Absolutely. But you do have to talk with this person to get through your differences. Um, and funny that you brought up the how it's similar to collaborative law because there, there are many similarities between mediation and collaborative law, one of them being that a mediation session or the sessions don't have to be with just the mediator and the parties. As long as the parties agree, because this whole process is voluntary, they can have financial advisors, they can have their attorneys present, they can have anybody else who may be useful to help them sort through the issues that they need to resolve. For example, even mental health professionals. Which is different from the court process, because court process and witnesses that, first of all, it's a huge process to get a witness on the stand, having to subpoena them, get them ready. But even more, you have the other party who might object saying, well, why does his mental health have anything to do with whether or not I should get maintenance and stuff like that? There's, mm -hmm. The court doesn't allow you to work through that as well. Yeah, and I'd also throw in there that these witnesses was, would probably be a lot more happy coming into a mediation session, whether that's in person or calling in, rather than being called to testify. So it's going to be easier to get them involved. And uh, so you said there's multiple sessions that would probably happen with mediation. Uh, in your experience, what are the issues that mediation has really helped with? Mediation, certainly with the children, because you have two parents who have may have different visions for how parenting time looks, how parental decision-making looks. And so to get them in the room, to let them each talk about not what their position is, but mostly why. And you have that mediator there to kind of be that, um, I, I guess, referee to tell them, okay, we're going to let her talk for a little bit. What, where is she coming from? Not just what she wants. Because so many people, when they have these issues, they just hear what the other person wants and they know they want something different. But they, maybe they don't know why the other person wants that. So that's where it's very useful. And another one of the benefits of mediation is it, if it's successful, and even if it's somewhat successful, some issues are worked through, it's going to be a lot more financially efficient. And to follow up to that question that I talked about with the court system, it seems like, you know, we're if you mediation versus the court court, you're really throwing it into the judge's hands. Um, and so it, it's almost to me like you're a little bit of gambling to see how the judge is going to rule. 
But uh, what about mediation? I mean, the mediator doesn't sound like they have really a lot of power to say this is how it's going to be. Yeah, you, you won't have a mediator telling you this is how it's going to be. You also have a lot more flexibility to create very unique and personalized outcomes for your divorce. Uh, for example, a lot of people come to the court for their uh, trial, and it ends up being something along, along the lines of the judge says, okay, dad gets every other weekend and two weeknights, or maybe there's a 50-50 parenting time where it's one week on, one week off, or something of that nature. But when you're mediating with your spouse and you're each talking about what you think is the best schedule for your children and why it is, you may come up with something that nobody else has ever done. But that's going to work for your family. It's going to be best for your children. And it's something that a judge would probably never order. I'm curious, have you ever run into anything strange in your practice? You say a unique thing. Is there anything that pops out at you on this? Um. Sometimes, especially when parents have two very non-conventional work schedules, for example, I have had a nurse as the mom and a firefighter as the dad. So you've so got so they never saw each other. Yeah, right. And you wonder why they were getting divorced. Do you think that would be <laughs> that would keep them married? So anyway, they had to do something completely unique. They got their calendars out for the year. They agreed that every year they were going to do the same thing because they knew their shifts. Dad was 24 hours on, 48 hours off. Mom was, I think it was three tens or four tens, something like that. And I have not heard a peep from them, and that was five years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Happily divorced. Yes. Happily ever after and divorced. <laughs> there you go. So with the flexibility and the ease, I'm guessing it's a lot less expensive than having to subpoena witnesses and everything. Seems to me like there aren't any drawbacks to doing a mediation. No. There are a couple of reasons why people would choose not to mediate. Because, again, this is a voluntary process. The mediation I'm talking about. I'm not talking about court-ordered mediation, which is a thing. Let's but talk that, about that in a moment. But yeah, we're, we're not talking about that. voluntary mediation right now. So there's two things. One is if there's a history of domestic violence Ooh, yeah, no. or mental abuse uh, power control, things like that to where people aren't coming into the mediation on a level playing field, just emotionally. One can easily get battered by the other. And so it's not really a voluntary outcome. It's just the other one just wears them down, just like they did during the divorce. Um, the other thing would be that it could be more expensive if you are committed to the process, but something happens and it just doesn't work out then you're kind of starting at the beginning. But the bright part of that can still be that you may have come up with some solutions, but you're maybe not starting from Even if it's base. on a temporary basis, maybe, rather than the full... Exactly. And so... After we go through the mediation process, you talked about a marital settlement agreement. Is that ultimately what we're trying to get through in the mediation is to get through all of the hard points and say, judge, we have a marital settlement agreement. You can take the weekend off. Yeah. In a way, the mediator will never draft any documents for the parties. Oh, interesting. Yes. The, and when I say draft documents, I mean documents that will be entered in the court. They will create things called memorandums of understanding. Now, that can be incorporated into a marital settlement agreement, but they don't want to be the ones actually 
drafting the final product. That becomes the duty of the parties and just bypassing the attorneys. Yes, exactly. So uh, sometimes one party will have an attorney and sometimes both of them will still have an attorney at the end just to get to that point. Fascinating. And so that brings up my next question then. You say that the mediator is not going to draft anything that's going to be between the parties. So is is what the mediator does, is there any legal, how do I say this, legal thrust? Is it legally binding what, it, what happens in mediation? It's not legally binding unless it's incorporated into the judgments or the marital settlements agreement or the allocation judgments. Fascinating. And so say we go through this process and one or both parties says, I can't deal with it anymore. What happens if they don't think mediation is going to work? Can they terminate it? Or what's go what happens if they can't work it out? Yeah, again, because this is a voluntary process, one or both parties can say, that's it, I'm done. And then that's when you either represent yourself or you hire an attorney and then you take it from there and you go more the traditional tract. Now that we've gone through the process, now that we've talked about the parties, what's supposed to be expected, who is this oracle that we call the mediator? Where do these people come from? Yeah, it's fun because they don't have just one background. Some mediators are financial advisors or financial planners. Oh, so you don't need to be an attorney to be a mediator. No, absolutely not. Uh, many mediators are mental health professionals. Oh, that, fascinating. Yeah, so that's good when children are involved. I didn't know that. So, that's so cool. Yeah. Even court-appointed mediators are often mental health professionals. And one of the most interesting mediations that I was involved in with two very strong-willed people, let's <laughs> phrase it that way, um, we actually selected a retired judge. It was great because, again, you have two strong-willed people. The judge was also a strong-willed judge. Oh, and this had to be fun. It was because... Even though she was still neutral and had no investment in the outcome, there were children involved. And so she let that guide the mediation. And she was more firm when saying, hey, past doesn't matter. We're talking about the future. Grow up, people. You're both adults. Let's act like adults and talk about the children as going mom used forward. To, as mom used to say, act your age, not your shoe size. Exactly. Exactly. So we've talked about mediation. We've talked about, you know, there's the process. Um, if the parties do agree and they enter into, I think you called it a marital settlement agreement, what's the difference between that and a judgment for dissolution? I, are they, why aren't they the same thing? Or I wouldn't say why, but are they just the same thing? Well, you would get a final judgment that incorporated every issue that was resolved through the, the process of the divorce if you went to trial. So a judgment is something that only the judge enters. So that's either going to be a long form, like what I just said, after a trial, the judge made all the decisions, this is what you get, your entire document. But if you two have an agreement, then the agreement is completely separate and only the party signed the agreement. Oh. And then that is incorporated by reference to the judgment. And in cases where they do come to an agreement, really the judgment is just used for a spouse if she needs to change her name. And that is about all I can think about what the judgment is, other than being the actual legal document that is required to a divorce prove a divorce. Because a divorce isn't final until we actually have the judgment enter. Yeah, Otherwise, it's just an agreement between the parties, and you can't agree to divorce yet. Exactly. And then they can take the judgment to their bank. If they need to close accounts or change names on accounts, they can take it to the DMV to help with the transfers of the property. It's only for the legal necessities following a divorce. 
legal necessities. So what happens if one of the parties says, I'm done paying alimony, or I'm done paying child support, or, you know what, I don't think I need to return the kid. What happens next? Well, that's where you had a question earlier. Does the, once the judgment is entered, does it end the divorce? Or do the parties have to deal with each other? They have to deal with each other, definitely, if there's children. And certainly for a time, they might have to deal with some of the things that I just addressed, like uh, changing the titles on property and dealing with debt. But you hope that the judgment settles everything and everybody just goes back to their corners and moves on with their life. But that doesn't always happen, unfortunately. So, yes, if somebody just decides, well, they're going to stop paying maintenance or alimony or they decide they're going to quit their job and live some other um, lifestyle that they had not lived before, then you have what's called post-judgment matters. And that's where you have to bring somebody back to either enforce the judgment or sometimes what we call a petition for rule to show cause, which simply put is just showing the court that somebody's in contempt. Interesting. Um, after it's entered, can your judgment or your settlement agreement, can, I, can it be modified in any way? Yeah, and that's the other post-judgment issue, or I'm sorry, case that'll come up. So yeah, there's things that you cannot foresee, and life just makes changes sometimes for you, and some things may not work out anymore. For example, a parenting time schedule. That doesn't have to be a contested thing. The parties may just agree, okay, we have to change this, or dad, somebody needs to move. Yeah, in the case, dad, dad, dad's schedule changed. He's working second shift instead of third shift now, and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, or sometimes somebody's income drastically increases or decreases, and that should be taken into consideration. Um, you brought this up at the very beginning, and it just popped into my head, though. Is there any difference between the process for a divorce in a marriage situation versus a civil union situation, or are they, is that process still the same? I have not gone through a, a dissolution of a civil union or whatever. They're the not very common, is. even though they're available. I know that. So. Yeah, so I really can't speak to that. But I think that you still go through the same process, the same standard process, but there may be different issues. So I'm curious, can you tell me any memorable stories of, from the courtroom? Well, not so much the courtroom, but I do have a fun story that worked out well for me at the end of the day in a divorce. Um, we had, this is another case, two very strong-willed people that could no longer live together, and we won't go into details of why, but there was a large dog involved, and one person wanted the dog, and it was that person's dog. However, they were living in an apartment that did not allow dogs until the divorce was finalized, and then funds could be used to buy another house. The spouse who remained in the marital house did not want the dog there, and um, she threatened to have it euthanized unless oh something was um, arranged that day. So guess what? I got a dog out of the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> you got a dog. You got a friend. <laughs> I did. I did. And it was a lovely dog. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. What was the dog's name? I'm curious. Daisy. Daisy. Oh, what a wonderful name. All right, Jean, thank you so much for joining me on Prime Law Podcast. My final question to you is, is if somebody needs to get a hold of you, they're tired of living with who they're living with, how do they get a hold of you? Well, thank you for having me. And they can get a hold of me at Prime Law Group. We have offices in Woodstock and Rockford. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone. My guest today is Jean Butler, and we're definitely having it back. Oh, well, thank you. I'd love to.
Congratulations, you've reached the disclaimer. This podcast is a production of Prime Law Group, LLC, who are attorneys licensed only in the states of Illinois and Wisconsin. The primary purpose of this podcast is educational in nature and does not constitute legal advice of any kind. While we love that you are a regular listener, please note that no attorney-client relationship is created by you listening or acting upon anything you hear in this podcast. References to any specific product or service does not function as an endorsement or recommendation of the same. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, go to www.primelawgroup.com or call 708-76-MYPOD.